Yeah, on the hill, yeah, we're, we've been running a bigger mob instead of having lots of little mobs and, yeah, just moving them around more regularly and we've already seen a massive impact. So that's given us the confidence to go and invest in putting more fencing in. And, you know, we're not doing, like, super expensive fencing. Like, we just did a four-wire, all-steel Waratah fence with T-irons, um, put electric forward electric wires on it with BT insulators and you know it's it was less than three bucks a meter and you know we just whack it in ourselves and so we can yeah start to subdivide and break blocks up fairly um, cheaply and yeah I can see fencing is going to be one of the biggest returns on investment we'll probably get. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew. And I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. I'm joined today by Tim and Camilla Rutherford. Tim and Camilla, can you please introduce yourself for the listeners? Uh, Sure. Hi, I'm Camilla Rutherford, um, married to my husband Tim, obviously, and we live in uh, Terrace, Centre Otago. you can tell us about the farm. Yes, uh, we're on a f- um, fourth generation on the Point Station, um, which is uh, located just in the Ardgal Valley. Um, we've got five and a half thousand hectares, predominantly high country, ranging from 300 metres up to 1,600, and about 350 hectares of irrigation. That's been in since 1910, since we took the block over from Morven Hills Station originally. So, um, yeah, that's us, really. Tell us about the irrigation. Uh, been around since 1910. Is that flood irrigation then? Yeah, so the property was um, set up for with flood irrigation. Um, a lot of it's still wild flood and border diked. Um, we've had that water right, yeah, from the very beginning, and it was a gold miner's right. So um, we actually owned the water outright and we had priority on the river, so we were second in line. We've been through the process, it's taken about 14 years to change from a gold mining water right to the new resource consent. So you've been there for four generations, you're currently running 2,000 ewes and 3,000 weathers and some, some cattle as well. What has the farm looked like through the generations? Has there been many alterations of the way that the farm has operated? Yeah, so traditionally the farm, um, it was a crown lease. Um, Luckily my parents um, freeholded it in the 80s because we had the right to um, paying as a crown lease. But like back then, the hill was cut into about four blocks, I think, and now it's about 17 is what my father's done over his time so he's subdivided quite a lot um the way we're looking now it's probably i'd like to get that up to nearer 50 um just so we can manage our grazing better but as far as irrigation like most of the infrastructure we're still using is the original infrastructure um as far as water races and stuff um and the, we you know we're meant to be going to a more efficient system, which is spray irrigation. But 
what people don't realize is one system doesn't need any energy input apart from maybe a digger through to clean the water aces once a year to a system that we're now going to have to rely on electricity to pump and the amount of irrigation that's gone in around our area in the last sort of 10 15 years peak power usage now is summer so yeah we're sort of um obviously started on this journey a few years ago and we're already seeing massive benefits with changing things up especially our management on grazing and water utilization is so much more effective now um we're probably using especially like this season we've had a good season with some summer rain so we're probably used half the water we have previously in some of the dry years so put a couple of center pivots in and we've got some hard hose guns as well running on gravity and we've got a wee movable single span pivot that we um, built ourselves from a wreck pivot that we got and used that as our sort of test bed at that time we were sort of um, being allocated four mils a day and we set this wee pivot up it does seven hydrants so um, we move it in daily and it can put on sort of 40 mils a day and we could put a rain gauge under that and a hot northwest and lose 12 mils under it between just out of the pivot to the ground like our paddocks used to be really good for flood irrigating because they were tight they were had a nice thatch on top the water used to just rip down them and now, the end real quick. Yeah. Yeah. and now my biggest you know my father's still doing the flood side of it and his biggest yeah complaint is it takes twice as long now but infiltration rate so high yeah so now but some paddocks we only do twice a season now and you were um tim kept breaking his hard hose irrigators this year because he was pulling them out on this typically on the terrace that he uses them and he was pulling them out and um the bricks the, yeah the bricks yeah. and the um, foliage there was so good that it was so sticky that it was really struggling to pull the hose along and it kept pinging gears here there and everywhere because you know what you know previously it would just slide across the bare ground but now there's so much fodder up there it's mm. it's um i mean these are good problems right <laughs> yeah was your father interested in you know what was his interest in subdivision mostly just to give us more blocks originally because it was literally had like a snow line fence at about three thousand feet and that was divided in two and then the top half was pretty much divided in half so yeah just breaking it up like we've still got blocks out there that are 800 hectares probably up the very top ones but we did a fence last winter and we cut it down a nice dark side bit and um, there's about 50 hectares and we wintered the cows in there most of the winter and you know the regrowth we're seeing now because we can um, sort of hold them in a spot and make them really open it up and um, yeah re get all that grass species regenerating yeah it's really making a big difference but typically with merinos, they like to camp in the top corner every night and they work their way down. So the top corners get obviously all the nutrients taken to the top and then they overgraze from the top down to the bottom and never graze the bottom out properly. 
So that's where we're looking to break it up so we can yeah hold them down in those bits that aren't getting grazed properly and rest the areas that they typically overgraze. So there's two things that I'm hearing that I'd love to have you speak to, especially as you know, high country merino farmers is like traditionally the terms recovery and or rest and also although you didn't use the word density that was what you're referring to as density mm. they're often words that aren't used so was your father um present to the power of recovery and density or is this something you've just taken on in your journey typically we were um set stocked and it's only really been the last three years that we've been playing around with the grazing especially more down the bottom here because this is where the sort of the engine room of the farm i guess and the daily happenings are but um yeah on the hill yeah we're we've been running a bigger mob instead of having lots of little mobs and yeah just moving them around more regularly and we've already seen a massive impact so that's given us the confidence to go and invest in putting more fencing in and you know we're not doing like super expensive fencing like we just did a four wire all steel waratah fence with t-irons um put electric four electric wires on it with bt insulators and you know it's it was less than three bucks a meter and you know we just whack it in ourselves and so we can yeah start to subdivide and break blocks up fairly um cheaply and yeah i can see fencing is going to be one of the biggest returns on investment we'll probably get so really moving away from the set stocking and getting into more density and more recovery and mobbing animals up and increasing mob size it's all yes one of the biggest challenges on these massive um areas is just simply the too big area i can definitely see the payoff on the investment now with the subdivisions do you have challenges with water or how do you how do you like for stock water like actually up on the hill was just about a different environment down the bottom here we sort of joke about farming three farms in one because we're sort of irrigation down the bottom and then we've got a real sort of no man's land we call it with real dry north facing really sort of brittle landscape and then once it gets sort of above three thousand feet we get sort of the southwesterly um, sort of rain come over the top and it's completely sort of alpine environment. Pretty good hill water for a dry farm, you know, our annual rainfall is sort of 450 mils average, but you know, if you know what an average is. <laughs> some years it's 300 and some it can be six, but yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we're, that stock water is, um, yeah, one of the things that does limit us on some of the bigger blocks where we can put a fence, a stock water system, which we kind of <laughs> don't want to go there just yet. But yeah, we need we need those hill creeks. You know, if we had to fence stock out of them, it's it's. You're some... learning also about how stock obviously do so much better when they're drinking out of hill creeks rather than stagnant um, water troughs, just because of the energized water and how much better it's. You know, we should all be drinking out of creeks and. Um, yeah, how much better the animal health is when they're actually allowed to drink out of hill water creeks yeah, and stuff. Yeah, just having the oxygen in it, being oxygenated and stuff. Yeah, it just, it's all these things we don't think about. <laughs> and it's the same with the irrigation too, right? Like, um, mm. what does it do to water pumping it and, you know, having it be 
not exposed to the oxygen oh. of the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of information available now actually around what uh, irrigating through pumps and um, you know steel pipelines actually does have an effect on grass growth. So really um, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Tim came he keeps flip-flopping like we've got this massive, massive thing coming up where we have to completely restructure the water and the fencing on our farm, which is incredibly daunting. And every day Tim comes home with another idea of how he might see it and how it might work and, you know, it changes daily. And the latest is really, I think, we just need to store the water in the ground, you know. Why, when we can get the paddocks and the hill looking, you know, we can get the infiltration really good. Why do we have to build big dams and put pipes and, and pivots everywhere when we poten the potential is to store the water in the ground, which is, you know, a win-win for everyone. It's really changing the way that we view our farms as a whole, isn't it? Yeah, we've been, you know, Tim said we've, it's been 14 years slash, you know, seven, six, seven years of this battle to get the water. Um, and, you know, if there's a silver lining there. It's that um, in the time, I think Tim started looking into regenerative farming around about the birth of our first son about six years ago. So, um, you know, in those six years that, you know, Tim's father's been putting everything into obtaining this water right, what we would have done six years ago to what we're going to potentially do now is, you know, completely different. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's actually um, it was a bit of a silver lining there, I think. What brought on that change of direction five or six years ago, Tim? Kids, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We had a really dry period from early 2000 until sort of 2012-14. And, you know, we had some, we had a lot of dry land loose in here. And, you know, some of those were 20-year-old sort of um, paddocks that had been, you know, they'd been there. And we sort of lost those. And we sort of went backwards quite a way because... So looking in hindsight, we probably had a, too many stock and stuff like that. You know, all the basic mistakes you do when you, you know, you're hoping it's going to rain. And but yeah, so that sort of set us back. And then oh, I just found that I was, you know, I came back. I didn't do any Lincoln or anything like that. And I just did the University of Life and had a wee look around and, you know, and then came home and, you know, thought, oh, yeah, I'll try and get things going a bit better and, you know, and try to get into all the modern methods and, you know, the farmlands rep was coming around every couple of weeks and suggesting things and, yeah, just sort of kind of got down that sort of rabbit hole and ended up trying to grow you know more crops and um stuff and yeah just really just started running into problems um dad was you know he imported a direct drill probably i'm trying to think when it was probably early 90s out of australia to try and tackle you know try and get rid of cultivation and stuff and so we could but we were just struggling to get stuff in because we'd literally got so broken and we were, yeah, had hard bare ground and yeah, just couldn't get things in the ground, which sort of, in the end, we ended up buying an old cross slot and that sort of, that sort of probably got me on the journey of looking into soil health. And that's when I started realizing a lot of the things I was doing was 
yeah, the problem. It was more the management. It wasn't yeah, <laughs> at all at all. But yeah, um, and from then on, I sort of yeah, you start looking to soil health, and you run into Gabe Brown and this and that, and you, Jesus, yeah, you can... <laughs> light bulbs going off all over the place. You know, and because we've been around long enough, oh, you know, the generations to observe what our landscape was like and where we were now, we could sort of you know see things that had changed, and yeah. And now, hopefully, I think we're changing for the better um, and starting to rebuild back what we'd lost over, yeah, the, the, over the years, really, especially during that dry time. Um, so, yeah, no, things are a whole lot more positive than they were <laughs> a few years ago when we we're struggling to get water and we were dry. So, yeah. So you talked a bit about no-till and, you know, really trying to minimise soil disturbance. And that was something that your father had done. And then coming in with the realisation that a lot of this is actually our management. What were some of the early learnings that you actually took and put into place? I guess the first things I did was um, I got rid of cultivation, got rid of most of the chemicals out of the system. Obviously, just using a wee bit of glyphosate now, and I'm, yeah, kind of <laughs> on the fence with that now. Even after learning more about it, but yeah, it's from there we just started. You know, it's this whole monocrop thing. Um, nothing else. You can't have anything else growing because it will just outcompete it or whatever. So I, one of my first cover crops was just the sweepings out of the shed. You know, I had a bit of this and a bit of that, and I just throw it all in the drill and chucked it in the paddock and we were like, oh, that grew pretty well. And it hung on and... Looked really pretty. <laughs> looked pretty and, yeah, and it just, you know, and then we're like, oh. So from there we, I sort of, and then looking at what Gabe Brown was doing and then I um, ran into Peter Barrett and talked to him on the phone and he sort of gave me the confidence to try, you know, a few more exotic stuffs. And, and from there on, yeah, we just sort of, I was taking our worst paddocks and just putting a few of these cover crop multi-species through annuals and grazing them off. We were sort of doing dairy heifers and stuff at that stage. So we are using them as winter crops. Um, and then, yeah, from that, just building from that and seeing results and, and just how much more moisture we could hold, not having... Because I was sort of cultivating. I got back into cultivation there for a few years and... You know, I could do a hundred sort of heat years a year and and then, you know, with the cross lot, I could suddenly do 400, you know, for the same sort of time and diesel or less diesel burn probably. We just could really start to spread it out across the farm and try and improve and keep that cover and, yeah, it's really changed things and... Spend a bit more time with his family. Yeah, more time <laughs> And the floor, the, the shed floor stays really well swept. No, it doesn't. It's still, still got too much to do. It's always an ongoing battle, the workload. But yeah, it's yeah, just working out um, where we spend our time now. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I guess, from I'm just doing the holistic management course at the moment. So yeah, we're getting into sort of that coming in the next couple um, days we've got coming up. So yeah, just try and yeah have a, a holistic view of what where we're spending our time and money and 
make sure we get a, a return from it, the best return from it, I guess. Yeah, how, how rare is it that we actually do consider our time and value our time as, you know, stewards of the land? Yeah. It's one of the biggest oversights, I think, you know, that we're a part of is that we just don't factor that in. It's just, ah, it's what you do. Even we, it's almost bred into us. Like if you don't, it's... Um, yeah, if you're not working, <laughs> yeah, you must be, yeah, or, you know, that's sort of the farming way, isn't it? It's being busy, busy all the time. Stop the glorification of busy is all <laughs> I say. Yeah, you can be productive and still have a life off farm and a family that remembers what their dad looked like not like my dad who was a spraying contractor who you know i never saw mm. he was uh, yeah. just gone before i got up and you know often late home as well so firstly I want to acknowledge you for that i'll just say quickly i'm i'm very proud of the father that tim is to his boys and how what gives me so much hope you know there's so much I struggle a bit with, you know, things going on in the world and, and why do you have kids and all this kind of stuff for that reason. But then I'm so encouraged when I watch them going out on the farm, their favorite thing to go out on the farm with their dad and, you know, they're digging up worms and they're doing this and then the rest. And, um, you know, I'm so encouraged by the mindset that they already have aged four and six is so different to what we grew up with and and how they're you know i feel our job is to to teach them you know how to save the world and they're going to be the ones to do it you know they're going to be the ones inheriting this that they've grown up in this completely different mindset to the ones that the mindsets that we've had and had to change firstly yeah let's talk about this mindset thing what's this mindset thing people keep talking about i'll let you answer that tim <laughs> yeah i'll just say before he answers this that um, the man I married eight years ago has changed a lot in a very, very good way in the last um, six or seven years and very proud of where he's come to. And um, I'm very excited for our future in the mindset change that we both had, I have to say, um, since you began this journey. Over to you. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, farming mindset's all what well, traditionally is all about production and yield and, you know, this and that. But yeah it's once you realize that you're not trying to control nature and you're more part of it that's i think when you really start to change your mindset for the for the better i guess and um look at things completely different you know what as we said with the water what we would have done six years ago is completely different to sort of what we are thinking about now we you know we're trying to integrate more trees into the landscape not clear them and get a bigger pivot in kind of thing and maximize the area so yeah that oh, i don't know how to explain the mindset thing it's just something that changes gradually with time and um yeah as you start observing it really helps i think, yeah. I think also it takes time and i think there's you know, when I talked to my family back home, my dad um, was an agronomist and, you know, he spent years selling chemicals. Um, and we, you know, I grew up in that world. Um, we live rurally, but um, not on a farm. And, you know, his, he's retired now, but his mindset slowly been changing, you know, as he's watching and hearing what um, his son-in-law's up to. And it just takes time. As soon as you have someone who just comes to you and you know blurts out all this stuff and it's like you know this and this and they see it so clearly but you can't make someone think that way it just no. it just you know tim always gets to me going oh stop stop you know 
you know putting so much on and you know this that and the rest when I get so excited about it but you know it, it's something that someone has to want to you know learn about and listen about but it it's just time and it's you can't force it on people so yeah I think one of the best things you told me about was um you know where does a farmer start and it's well you've got to start on the top paddock being your mindset and that's I think everyone's biggest challenge um not just in farming but in life in general it's how you look at the world let's come back to because i was actually uh, i first discovered you guys actually through camilla's um photography so can you tell us a bit about what you've been doing with your camera camilla and also actually on instagram because i've seen <laughs> you out there with the kids having you know doing all the fun stuff out on farm thank you yeah um well i met uh, tim i was i'm actually from scotland um grew up just south of edinburgh um, and came over to new zealand um, after graduating art school um, to pursue my career as um, an adventure sports photographer i guess you call it and i spent um, nine years chasing winter across the world um, in search of uh, the ultimate um, skiing and the ultimate snow and then i um, decided that New Zealand was pretty cool and that I loved Monica and that I wanted to set up shop there and start my um, photography business um, and be grown up and stay in one place for longer than 10 minutes. Um, that's when I met Tim and I decided that I wasn't going to go back and do another northern winter and um, eventually moved to the farm and kept my photography career going um, and would travel a lot for work and work in tourism and um, all sorts of other commercial photography ventures, um, you know, getting paid to go on adventures basically, it was pretty sweet. Um, and then when Tim obviously had children, uh, we had our first son and when Tim started um, looking into this, you know, I was always interested in farming but, you know, not the quintessential farmer's wife per se. Um, and then Tim, I think, showed me Gabe Brown um, YouTube talk, TED talk. And Alan Savory. And Alan Savory's yeah. TED talk. And I watched those two. I was like, oh, God, what's this boring farming chat that Tim's going to make me watch? And I was already struggling having lived on the farm with um, the work-life balance that, you know, Tim had. And we had a young baby and I was just stuck at home while he worked the whole time. And, um, you know, and then we heard Gabe Brown going on about how you could work less and earn more money and do less input. And I was like, oh, well, this is awesome. <laughs> Can we do this, please? But I've always been a little bit of uh, environmentally conscious and, you know, or trying to do the right thing. And I always struggled a bit with Tim being out there spraying and doing these kind of things. But what did I know? I'm not a farmer. Coming home grumpy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Spraying, if he's been yeah. spraying, he'd come home so grumpy. Oh, headache, this and that and sore neck. And I'm like, um, when we started to change, I got so inspired by what he was doing. And a bit like what we were talking about before, I wanted to go and tell my friends. I wanted to tell everyone, oh, do you know that you can farm like this? And it's actually really good for the environment and you can eat steak and feel good about it and you know all this kind of stuff and um i also believe so strongly in what he was doing as a photographer and storyteller i felt it was my duty to to record what's happening on our farm you know i started this instagram account for the farm um you know they're pretty private family the rutherfords and it was a bit of a big deal me doing this and you know i was like is it okay and i'm a very sherry person um and suddenly i'm telling tim's story or tim and alistair's story and you know people like yourself like oh yeah this is you know this is six years ago when i guess it was you know even less well known than it is now 
um, and you guys were reaching out and Merino New Zealand were like, oh, we've heard about what you guys are doing and we want you to be part of this pilot. Of, And suddenly that ball started rolling and it, I think it gave Tim confidence in what he was doing. It was like, oh, I don't have to do this alone. There's other people out there doing it and this is really cool and I'm getting quite a lot of cool feedback. And I'd write these lengthy posts on Instagram and get Tim to fact check them and then... <laughs> I'd get some quite incredible feedback. I'd be like, oh, what, does anyone comment? Tell me, tell me what the comment was. And um, he was really into it. Anyway, that led on to me realizing that this story was way bigger than just us. Um, and I actually applied for a grant to take this photography project further afield and, and uh, won a grant from Canon New Zealand. Um, and then I researched into um, how I could tell other farmers' stories with the ultimate goal being to, to have an exhibition to take to I guess farmers and uh, rural and urban communities to really showcase a positive farming story. I felt like farmers, um, you know, any media that's out there is either so dry that it's like only farmers are going to read it and it's definitely boring or is damning on farmers, you know, oh, they're polluting waterways here and they're doing this wrong and or farmers complaining. So I was like, let's really try and get a compelling emotive and um, exciting um, bit of media out there. So that was my goal. And last year, I managed to get a few exhibitions under my belt, a couple in Monica, one in Nelson, and with the ultimate goal of taking it into the belly of the beast, into central Auckland. Um, And Icebreaker actually hosted an exhibition last uh, August, just before they got locked down, like four days before they got locked down. Um, in um, Commercial Bay, right in the middle of, of the city. So we showcased, um, I showcased 24 images and a half an hour film that I made um, all about, it was seven case studies, um, our farm being one of them, Simon Osborne, Mark Anderson, um, Tracy Bayless from Grandad's Beef, uh, uh, Kay Baxter from Kuanga Institute, um, Shannon Wright, who's a market gardener at Neil Hamilton, Mangarara Station, Greg Hart from Mangarara Station. And um, I visited all these farms and um, they all welcomed me with open arms, not knowing who I was or what I was doing, um, and shot photos and, and shot video. And um, yeah, it's got picked up by quite a lot of uh, media interest and off the back of that I've managed to get a few uh, rural clients in my photography business so um, I think the goal kind of what I set out to do I think it worked but um, yeah you sort of get stuck in head down and and not quite sure whether people are listening but hopefully they did. (laughs) What was some of the consistent themes? You did say that everyone welcomed you with open arms but was there any consistent themes, and in particular, not so much around the what was being done on farm, but yeah. around the who the farmers were as individuals and people? Oh, absolutely. I um, I don't really know what I was doing, but I knew that I had to get a series of, of powerful images. Um, and one of the images that actually has been sort of, I've had a few clients since going, I really like what you did with those portraits of the farmers. Can we recreate that? Was I got right up close and took a really intimate photo of, of just their face um, with quite shallow depth of field, mainly to focus on their eyes. Because I think for me, the, it was the connection between the viewer and um, the farmers so that people actually got these are real people out there with real issues and real struggles and they're trying really hard to make um, you know make something of this um, so the 
I sat down after I did the photography and everything and I'd, I'd be with each farmer for at least 24 hours and um, sat down at the end there and, and, and did an on-camera interview um, where I asked, um, you know, lots of the same questions, some sort of um, stuff about um, what they were farming and all those kind of slightly dry questions. But I, what I really wanted to get was, was in, into the, into the heart, into the, um, you know, their emotions on why they're doing what they're doing. And, and a constant theme that came across was, um, was the mental health. Like my mental health is so much better since I've been doing this. And some people had been doing it three years. Some people had been doing it 40. Um, but it was just mind blowing how, how much, um, their outlook on life was greatly improved by feeling like they were doing good and feeling like that they were making progress and the mental health. Um, you know, I think it's, it's one of the biggest things for farmers is to, to feel good about what they're doing. And when people feel empowered and people feel good about what they're doing, the changes that can be made are just phenomenal. Um, you know, it's about empowering people rather than cutting them down. I feel like I, I don't want to get political, but I, I sort of understand what governments are trying to do and putting sanctions and all this kind of stuff in, but they're just going about it the wrong way. If you can just make farmers feel empowered and give them control and give them incentive, I think that we could have some incredible results. Um, so yeah, the mental health was a constant theme. Um, if you look at it holistically, um, health and you know general human and animal health and well-being. Um, so what people are eating and, you know, specifically from i say the granddad's beef um you know the nutrition in the beef that's farmed regeneratively over conventionally farmed beef as well as um the market gardener and and Kay, Kay baxter from the kuanga institute was the nutrition in the food we're eating has such an incredible impact on not only our mental health but our physical health and our you know well-being um which has really led me and tim on to um, I am very picky about what my children eat. <laughs> yeah. um, and even, you know, I'm on the road a lot with my work and I'm always trying to, you know, if I'm on the road for a few days and eating crap, wow, I feel really not good after it. So, um, you know, food, you know, it's that old saying, we are what we eat, but we are what we eat eats as well. So, um, you know, those kind of things, I think, was a, a theme as well for me that really hit home when I visited all these places. And um, one regret was I didn't couldn't take Tim with me because he was like, oh, I want to go see them. I want to see. But obviously, with two kids and a farm to run at home, that um, yeah, because when I travel for work, um, it's it's Tim that's looking after the kids. So I'm I'm really fortunate that um, we can set up like that. And that's looking at that holistic view of, you know, yes, he might be have busy times, but he can also have times where I'm working and kids see their mother working and and they can you know spend time with their dad definitely going to come back to the family because I think there's something really incredible to capture here in this conversation and I also want to talk about because what you've said is a couple of really profound things you are what you eat eats and you touched on how your environment you didn't say it in these words but I really heard it is that your environment has a massive part to play on not just the mental physical well-being but also you know the way that we carry ourselves and it really came through in what you guys said around when Tim would come home out there spraying, isn't it? And like, you may not know, because back then, 
you know, possibly you didn't know. I mean, the, the, the danger signs on the can might give it away and, you know, the, the smells and that might be like a little hunch. But like, really, we don't really know what we're doing detrimental and because everyone else is doing it. So you're like, oh, I'll just do it. But it does have an impact, doesn't it, Tim? Massive, yeah. I, I don't know. It just never sat well with me. Like I'd go out spraying and it would just, I just always come home and I just always feel, yeah, mentally drained. Like, yeah, as I, so yeah, it's good. No more spraying. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can be a bit more forgiving to my dad for being, for coming home grumpy from it being spraying all day. <laughs> yeah. That's what, what our four-year-old is so cute. He calls yeah. spraying, um, fissilizing. Yeah. So have you been fissilizing, dad? <laughs> yeah, and that's the sort of spraying where, you know, probably he's fine to be around, you know. Yeah. Traditionally, spraying is like, don't bring your kids, although I did. I just did because it was like, this is normal. Yeah, and, even and... a six-year-old, he said, oh, why you got sprayers there, Dad? You should just get rid of those now the other day. I was like, <laughs> At six years old. Yeah, he was just like, you don't need them anymore. Get rid of them. I was like. So, the, and this is your son? Six, six, yep. Six yep. So yeah. he's picking up on what you guys are doing yeah 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 and i bought a plastic water bottle the other day out of desperation <laughs> from a garage and my son could not believe it he was like what is this mum?" got ridiculed <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're gonna walk the talk now mum. for the vegetable garden i'll save it <laughs> tell us about what's family life like now you know farmers wives in new zealand it's like this role where and i'll just speak to it from the world that i grew up in is like yep bring the scones to the shearing shed look after the kids uh, just be okay with the lack of interaction with the husband uh, is that your experience i think it could have been i really think it could have been um and i felt myself slipping especially we've um uh, moved from one cottage with so three dwellings on the farm and one cottage is down the other end of the farm which is where my first our first son was born and um i was you know this traveling very social girl who um married a farmer moved to terrace um didn't really know anyone or didn't know anyone in terrace um all my mates lived in wanaka and um i had this baby and i was you know stuck in this wee cottage uh, with the nearest neighbors four kilometers away and i i grew up rurally i'm not afraid of being rural at all i know what it's like um and a husband that was working all the time and there was definitely some times where i had some real struggles sort of shit you know is this my life um you know um and then obviously as we've talked about that sort of change started to happen and then when I got pregnant with my second son we moved up to um, renovated another dwelling on the farm and felt like I became more part of the farm having been quite out on the, the side um, and and you know was involved a bit more in this transition change and and got but I think we both just got you know more excited about the prospect of the future of this place rather than the sort of oh the years of hard graft and this is just how it's got to be and this is um, whereas no, no, actually we have choices. We can make this work, hopefully. I mean, we still have the days where we're like, we just feel yes. like walking away. <laughs> um, and um, the other, you know, when we're looking at this thing holistically, um, I'm from Scotland. My family's in Scotland. I haven't, you know, obviously because of COVID, I haven't been home for three years and I don't want to be going home alone. I want to be going home with Tim. So this year, actually, um, going home for six weeks, which is going to be awesome. And Tim's father, parents are amazing, and and 
and allowing him to do that. I mean, allowing him, but building it so that we can do that. And that's something in the future as we take over this place is to say, right, well, you know, every couple of years we're going to Scotland for six weeks. And that's just the way it, the way it is. And, um, and I'm going to be traveling for work. And yes, I'll be gone for bits of time, but also be home. And I know that there'll be times of the year where Tim's going to be busy making hay or busy mustering or whatever. And then there's going to be times where hopefully we can kick back and go camping or, you know, go skiing or whatever. So that's, I think, our goal. And I think it's, it's you know, to the farmer's wife thing. I really, like, it sort of gets me in the pit of my tummy where I'm like, I hate being put in that box. My career is so important to me um, that I'm not going to be seen as that girl that moved to the country and married a farmer and had a bunch of babies and that's that. It's <laughs> like... Um, there's more to me. I mean, I hats off to all the women out there um, that do that, and there are, I can see how awesome a life it is. But it's just not what I want from my life. We need a, a balance, and I'm a, a traveler and adventurer at heart. What I'm hearing through this conversation is choice. On the farm, there's choice. There's different ways of doing things, and you guys are building your life that way. You're choosing these things that aren't the status quo. You know, there's no need to justify it. As this is like not being defined as a farmer's wife. It's like this whole way of farming. People fall into it as well, even terming something as regenerative agriculture is defining it. But we all know that, you know, as you go through the journey, Tim, I'm sure every year the farm has, you know, operated differently. Well, I guarantee you has operated differently. So nothing's ever defined as this is the way it's got to be done. It's like a dance, you know, you work it out and it's all choices that you make. And I'm really hearing that now rolling through into the, or maybe not now, but maybe it's always been there. You're making choices based on what your commitments are on and off the farm. Yeah, definitely. Traditionally, like, cause with the irrigation, you know, summer was haymaking, silage, baleage. We got to the stage we were making, oh, I think we did, 2,300 bales and, and then we fed them all out that winter and you know every day I was peeling them in plastic off bales and again that just didn't sit right with me and just so we're just trying to change how we look at things now now we're sort of buying beef steers and stuff in the spring and actually utilizing the feed when we've got it making way less hay we've gone back just to doing hay again now got rid of all the plastic the net actually bought an old baler so he gets string again so we got back to natural sizal twine just to make things easier in the winter instead of making hay or, or feed all winter and feeding it all i mean making it all summer and feeding it all winter is yeah and to give us time to breathe again, because traditionally that was the time when we did our maintenance in the winter and you caught up on jobs and, you know. So we're trying to build a system around that now and we're hardly doing any winter crops, just doing everything on grass, um, baling hay and using that to regenerate paddocks or build paddocks that need it by transferring the nutrients and seed to those and, and wintering way less stock and wintering way less stock because I was getting paddocks better but then you can quickly destroy your work in one grazing you know get a wet winter or whatever where dairy heifers on 
buy my iPad at your back at square one. And that was frustrating me as well. So now we're sort of trying to get rid of the heavy stock for winter cattle, mostly winter cows on the hill now and and a lot most of the sheep so yeah we're trying to just make it easier so we've got time to do stuff and go away you know and yeah enjoy life because there's more to life than just being stuck on the farm being a slave you know i just kind of felt like we were a slave to the place there for a while and just get burnt out and broken and then everything becomes too hard you know and yeah so once we sort of got a head around that and now things are getting better and easier we can um, focus on what really matters that's a perfect segue into what's it like being a dad you know and actually getting to be a dad it's hard work some days Christ. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome it's great fun you know especially you know we've got two boys and they just love coming out on the farm and and you know they've been with us this whole journey so I guess, um, yeah, just picking up on what we're doing, you know, eldest boy, all he loves to do is walk through the cover crops and collect all the seeds, things like that. And... Well, we've got so many little jars of seeds oh. around the place and, and the veggie garden, you, you like there'll be random stuff growing because <laughs> he just goes and he just pushes seeds into the ground that he's found in, in the paddock. And yeah, he's, he's the seed man for sure. Yeah, he's the seed man. Um, yeah, so I know it's great being able to share the highs and the lows of farming. Sometimes, you know, when I come home grumpy, there's, you know, what have you been doing today, Dad? And, oh, you know, it's doing something and it's, you know. But I'll say just quickly, so um, Tim's father is quite an incredible man and has taught Tim so much about um you know, how to fix anything and everything and reuse this, that and the rest. This place is like a museum. Um, <laughs> the the um, the workshop up there has got um, four generations worth of, of number eight wire mentality. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, the boys, I can see already the boys, you know, from an observer, you know, having not grown up on this place, how Tim would have spent those times with his dad, look, watching him and, and, tinkering around with spanners and stuff in the workshop and that is exactly what our boys are doing and learning how to like fix stuff and take it apart and put it back together and how this works and the rest and and I think that's a really awesome thing um you know and it, it is that balance of of making them not feel entitled that they've got everything here on a plate making them realize that you've got to work hard work for stuff it's not always holidays and um new motorbikes or whatever it's you know it's 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 hard work with a good balance of, of of family time I think. Yeah, and and that it's not all it's not all uh, glamorous. Mm-hmm. It's not always going to be happy dad or happy mum. And, mm-hmm. no. and getting, I, I, can hear, <laughs> I can hear they're getting you know curious as well. Like um and probably uh right there beside you understanding you know what's what's going on for you guys out there on the farm. And I really I'm really it's quite amusing to hear they're almost like accountability partners in a way you know i can really hear it with the plastic and definitely definitely yeah no it's going to be interesting we're heading back to scotland in july and we haven't been as i say for three years so um there we went last time when lewis was 18 months and alfie was three and a half and just their outlook on i'm really excited to travel with them now that they you know know so much more and are so much more observant and 
um, to sort of, yeah, get their outlook and they're going to hang out with their wee cousins over in Scotland. And, and um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting, actually. What's really clear for me um, in this conversation, guys, is you're all problem solvers. Like it's it's when you've got a problem, you're not looking for the solution from the past or maybe there'll be things from the past that you'll use, but you guys are solving problems specific to what you're dealing with mm. and, 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 and creating solutions that are specific to what the problem is. You know, because in a world of following a script, I'm sure you, you will remember that, Tim? Yes, yep, yep. What's it like now, rather than following a script, you're writing? It's, I guess it's just taking control back, you know, with the farmlands, reappears come around and you go, oh yeah, well, what do you want to do with this paddock? Oh, we'll put it on crop and then you just write out this sort of the script and, you know, and you're chucking laws band in on the first spray just to get that first round of springtails just in case, you know, and then you realise that, you know, you're smoking one, maybe one bug and there's probably another thousand there that are beneficial that, and we just, and things like that, and we ran into problems and, and then, you know, the costs involved, and then you're not getting good crops back. There's so much more pressure and stress on, you know, getting timings right with spraying and all that stuff. So, yeah, just really taking control back, I guess. I and... think for me, like noticing what your Tim has just started asking questions of everything. Yeah. It's asking why and ask, you know, not trusting, not not trusting. I'm not saying he's a not trusting person, but just asking questions. Yeah. Yeah, why are we putting laws ban on as a pre-emergent? Yeah. Is there springtails? No, but we we quickly found that they were the first things to come back, and the Nisius, which we never used to have, you know. And that's the beauty about farm, um, farming with my father, you know. He's turning 70 this year, I think, and, mm. you know, he's been with me, you know, every day farming we get on like you know really well he's been supportive of everything we've done and you know it's great we're talking about how he used to farm with his father you know and they tried you know things way back then like the first fertilizer off the back of the landy with the blower and it was basic slag or something and he said oh it grew heaps of clover and stuff but then we put the sheep in there and they wouldn't eat it and, you know there's things like that and just start questioning and it's been really yeah i guess it's it's pretty family based here <laughs> um but yeah it's been awesome farming with dad and just you know he's really seeing the changes as well and i think that's given us both the confidence it's a it's a you know so many guys that are going out and doing this some of the biggest hurdles they have is their fathers you know if they're still on the farm and because they're stuck in that mindset and we're yeah, my father's sort of, I guess, changed his mindset. Well, he, you know, talking to him like we used to grow turnips and stuff and never have bug problems. And then we'd start growing, you know, once I was growing, the, growing crops and we were running into all kinds of troubles, but they weren't using the chemicals we were using back then. They might have been using a plough, but <laughs> they weren't using both. Things like that over the years have really sort of hit home and we realised that we needed to change, you know, things were going in the wrong direction, especially we did one year of like fodder beat and I was just like blown away the amount of chemical I put on that. And then the stop just didn't really do on it anyway. 
and you take in the whole picture of something say like a beet crop and the amount of time you amount of chemical and inputs you put into it and then what it actually does to the paddock with grazing that heavier crop and in situ um, has massive roll-on effects and no one even looks at the true cost it's just sense per dry matter you know some of those paddocks take a couple of years to come back to be able to grow a decent pasture again so and also i guess the other thing with um flood irrigation some of our pastures are 50 i have not seen worked up for 50 years old and we've changed them just with grazing management we ran into problems with small leaf plantain and stuff being an issue and in the end we tried some chemical fixes and they didn't work and in the end we just um, changed our grazing and suddenly that problem plant became palatable it's just things like that and you just gives you confidence to try more and more stuff what were some of the things you were looking at changing? Or, I mean, what are some of the things that you changed in your grazing management? What, is, what are some of the practices or principles that, you, that you've changed? If you could speak to just some of the most important things for you. For us is just time of access to the pasture, really. So now we're doing day breaks. You know, we, I tried doing four or five shifts a day and it works um, you know, as a tool, but in the end, we're just back to sort of one day breaks. And I think you found the labour involved in doing that wasn't quite worth it, was it? And we weren't getting the same weight gains. And but just now, like paddocks might get grazed four times a season. We've got pretty long rest periods. You know, that's four days of grazing for the whole season. The rest of the time, it's growing compared to you know putting a mob and that paddock and letting them have a week and they've got a week's access to that whole paddock now it's you know we just cut it down so it's maybe seven one day breaks or whatever and you know so it's time of grazing rest and that's had a huge impact and leaving a lot of residue we leave more residual as well and we always have we've never topped here because if we top you just can you just burns off you know you just lose it. It's just surprising these pastures that have been in 40 or 50 years are some of our top producing pastures. And compared to all this modern stuff that I've tried, it just, yeah. <laughs> rye grass is like the, the, gra the grass scrubs have been in for the rye grass, and I'm like, oh, good. I can get some decent stuff in, you know, and just go overseed it. But That's one yeah. thing that we haven't talked about what Tim was doing yesterday, a t couple of years ago. Tim and his father bought a 1982, there you go, that's how old we are, um, combine <laughs> harvester. Because <laughs> um, you're learning a bit about epigenetics and, um, you know, especially with stock as well as, you know, seed that's grown on farm. Tim's trying to grow his own seed to put back in on farm. Um, so you're finding you can take over. Yeah, or well, just once you learn about epigenetics and, you know, I'm, I grow my crops completely different to how the seed crops grow and you see, mostly they're had all kinds of stuff thrown at them and high nitrogen to produce lots of seed but what really hit home for me is I tried to I bought in some rye corn seed to because I thought I had to get some new genetics or whatever to um, and I put it in the ground and it all germinated but only half of it actually came up through the soil I don't know what happened to it but the guy I had a girls look at it at the time and they just couldn't really work out it just didn't have any vigor and and so I drilled some what I had left over in the silo beside it and you know it all came up and just carried on and just things like that that fix a little 
thought in your mind and and so yeah i grow my right i grow this year i grew rye corn oats barley and um yeah just yeah just put it in the silo just store it up you know and, and use it for my own crops if i'm using any cover crops or anything i just mix in yeah just to try and get that epigenetic um progress and it's the same with our stock because we've we've we cut our ewe numbers back and we've been trading um half-bred lambs and run into problems with drench resistance and stuff there so we decided to um buy some old ewes um merino ewes to try and um, beef our ewe numbers again and we just ran into a whole lot of problems with them because they'd just grown in a different environment and they'd been treated completely different and they just started dying on us and we found that we cut one open it had five capsules inside of it and we're like no wonder they're dying because <laughs> they've just been running on you know they've obviously been capsuled every year and and once we got to lambing them they were just running out of energy because they just didn't have the room and space because they had all this plastic inside of them and things like that but people just yeah you sort of you don't think about that i guess and there's just these so yeah we've really sort of hit home that we need to because we've our use were performing perfectly well in the same conditions and we've just got to really focus on breeding our own stuff it all comes back to taking control and and yeah taking ownership of all that stuff again and not relying on you know outside stuff especially at the moment like god we didn't buy i think i bought two and a half tons of fertilizer for my crops seed crops this year and i grew 65 ton of seed off that and a bit of lime and that's pretty much in a bit of fish and that's it you know i'm not on that inflation cycle at the moment getting hammered because yeah. we're not relying heavily on inputs you know and i guess the one of the ultimate dreams is to not rely at all on get rid of almost all the tractors and hopefully set the irrigation up so it can generate generate us some power um through either hydro or solar or something and then we don't need to buy next to anything in yeah it's not a i guess good business model for anyone else the far you know the farmers have been pretty well farmed recently so um we're just trying to get away from that now and just keep our inputs and risks low and build our soil to Mm. be way more resilient and hold more moisture and all those kinds of things so and spend all summer camping yeah you know (laughs) No winter. Um, I've gone from loving machinery to now I can't yeah, I can't be bothered with tractors and stuff now. I just it's funny, yeah, it's just it's just all changed. You realise that is it worth driving around in circles doing this? Is you know, how much benefit are you actually getting back from all this and the term being farmed comes to mind almost in every case, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And what I'm hearing is creating seeds that suit your environment. When you get down to it, what you're really communicating is that it really is just because of the lack of suitability to any environment and that things need all these external inputs. Exactly. So awesome guy. Look, I could talk forever and um and and you know, I know you guys have got a life to, you know, go and live. So let's let's finish up with our final question, which is 
if you could say anything to someone who's just starting their journey, what would you say to them? Just try, start on one paddock, start small, give yourself the confidence, change something, whether it's what's in it, the management, and just build from there. Because in the end, there's so many people out there trying to put doubt in your mind, and there's times where I've struggled with it and thought, oh, God, am I doing the right thing? Everything you read in the farm papers is, yeah, tends to put a bit more doubt in your mind. And, yeah, so just you got to start somewhere and start small do some on-farm trials is what i do a bit of and yeah and go from there really i think you know what you've always said and it's same as anyone's outlook on life is is you don't need to be doing everything perfectly it's just you know start trying one small small thing and see how that feels and then kind of rolling on from there it's sort of not an all or nothing scenario it's definitely a, an evolution and um you know we're still mm. learning you know aside from the farming thing and and how to live a more sustainable or regenerative life and day-to-day choices in the supermarket and you know everything you buy or everything you know just thinking oh if i just do this then that might have a knock-on effect here or and just starting small um you know it doesn't take what's the saying it doesn't take one person you know one person doing everything properly it just takes a lot of people doing a lot of small things to make a change so um yeah that's what i, what I would say <laughs> yeah and be prepared to fail because you will fail somewhere and don't be scared of it just take it as a learning and move on you know we're still <laughs> oh, what no reason we're doing you know we're not doing everything right and you never will be you're always learning every day and sometimes you see an effect instantly sometimes you see it a couple of years down the track and then you're like oh yeah that's right i did something different there and you try and think what you did and you know especially with um even you know breaking paddocks up grazing them into in sections now and you know one break got grazed differently and you can see that a couple of years later and you're like what did i do there different you know and on and on the failing thing i think it was a podcast we listened to the other day was you know if you if failing is almost a blessing because you're you end up learning more you know like with those sheep the chemical sheep the chemicals and that you know we cut open and had all the capsules you feel it makes you feel sick to your stomach that that happened but suddenly that's taken us on this journey of no we're not going to buy in these ewes you know we need to breed up our you know from every failing you you pick yourself up and dust yourself off and go actually that was a really good lesson in this and we know that we can do this by just changing the way that we do that um yeah i mean it's all well and good to say it can be devastating at the time (laughs) yeah don't get me wrong it's not easy but um you know it's just hopefully seeing a brighter future can help inspire and drive what does Gad Brand say? If you're not failing at least once a year, you're not you're not trying enough or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. You gotta. There's no formula because every farm's different. Every farmer's different. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just about finding your own path. I think yes. having a play. Having a play. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it fun. Yeah, felt like it put the joy back in farming. It's... Yeah, it definitely has. Yeah, definitely because mm. you're in control again. Awesome, guys. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today and your generosity. Sharing your story uh, will continue to have uh, an impact for many years to come. So thank you so much, guys, and keep up the great work.
Thank you, Jono. It's been, um, yeah, I know Tim's been a, a real listener. Well, we both have for your Quorum yeah. Sense podcast, so it's a real honour to, to be here talking on it. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.